Support for this podcast comes from Bryn Mawr Communications. BMC produces a number of informative podcast series spanning a variety of topics in optometry. Discover a new show at itube.net slash podcasts. Hello. Well, you made it through another month, and it's time for the next regular episode of The Mod Pod. Ah, but what do we have in store for you? Well, we pulled a mix of three articles from our July-August issue that we thought would be of interest to everyone. One is from the cover focus on cataract and refractive surgery, another is from the subfocus on myopia, and the last is our managing your practice column. Let's get started and you can let us know via email or social media what you thought of our selection. First up, we have Nabila Gomez, an optometrist at Dell Laser Consultants in Austin, Texas, with her pre-surgery checklist for optometrists. Refractive intraocular surgery, including cataract and refractive lens exchange, offers an exciting opportunity to improve a patient's vision and quality of life. Presbyopia correcting intraocular lens technology is ever-evolving, and IOL selection is based on a thorough patient assessment, including an evaluation of the patient's ocular health. This is where pre-surgical checklist comes in which must include candidacy criteria, effective and consistent communication, a review of the patient's visual preferences, ocular history and examination, management of expectations, and a record of addressing any issues with the ocular surface. When you have a patient in the market for refractive intraocular surgery, following the checkpoints I'm about to share will ensure optimal results. Every procedure has specific criteria that deem a patient a candidate or not. Therefore, we must help patients understand their treatment options. Cataract surgery becomes medically necessary when a patient's vision declines and limitations in daily activities are consistent with the severity of their cataract. Patients who do not yet have cataracts or visually significant cataracts may consider refractive lens exchange to maximize vision at all distances and minimize dependence on glasses. Refractive lens exchange is considered an elective procedure and is not covered by insurance. It is vital to establish a good relationship with a refractive surgeon in order to learn about their assessment and surgical approach, choice of lenses, and language when discussing surgery with patients. Consistent communication among doctors will keep patients confident throughout the process. One of the preliminary considerations before refractive surgery is the patient's lifestyle and visual expectations. The answer to the questions below can provide valuable insights into the patient's preferences. Do they want partial or minimal spectacle dependence? What are the visual demands of their work or hobbies? What's the refractive error? For example, if nearsighted, do they like reading without glasses? Do they wear contact lenses? Soft or rigid gas permeable? Do they have monovision? How tolerant will they be of glare and halos due to lens design? Conversations about lens technology should be kept simple and focused on visual outcomes. If a patient wants to maximize their vision at all distances, I will first discuss multifocal IOLs. Conversely, 
some patients want to continue wearing glasses after surgery and prefer a monofocal IOL. Nearsighted patients must be advised that technology may not match their natural reading ability. Patients who knit or have other specific near demands may still require the use of reading glasses after surgery. Patients who work or drive at night or already experience night vision disturbance should be warned about some decreased contrast and they should also be aware that glare and halos may appear or worsen. Patients wearing rigid gas permeable lenses before cataract surgery tend to have high visual expectations and should be advised about some mild contrast reduction. As well, they must transition to soft contact lenses a few weeks to months before surgery. This will help improve corneal irregularities and stabilize corneal measurements. Approximately one to two weeks before biometry measurements, Patients wearing soft contact lenses must also discontinue their use to keep normalizing the cornea and improve postoperative refractive accuracy. Patients with successful monovision history may commit to a monovision setup after cataract surgery, and it is important to inform patients with monovision that they may prefer wearing glasses while driving at night to reduce the occurrence of glare and halos following cataract surgery. It is also important to consider the patient's personality when determining their ability to neuroadapt and tolerate the small loss of contrast in exchange for a broader range of vision. Some doctors use a questionnaire while others assess personality in the examination room. A careful examination should help set the patient up for postoperative success. Therefore, it is essential that all pre-existing conditions affecting the visual pathway or causing increased risks during and after surgery be identified and addressed. Corneal topography can be performed to assess corneal irregularity, dryness, and astigmatism. Also, be sure to evaluate for systemic medications such as alpha-1 antagonist drugs, which can cause poor dilation and intraoperative floppy iris syndrome. You will also want to rule out developmental anomalies, degenerative conditions, and other retinal, macular, and optic nerve pathology. If any of these conditions are present before surgery, explain their consequences and visual limitations to the patient. Those with mature cataracts require a B-scan to assess their fundus before surgery. High myopes are at increased risk of renal detachments and require retinal clearance. And many myopic patients are likely to experience floaters postoperatively. Other conditions that need to be identified include previous corneal refractive surgery, example, radial keratotomy, LASIK, photorefractive keratectomy, and advanced surface ablation. Dry eye disease and pontokeratitis, eyelid abnormalities and disease, pterygium, inducing corneal astigmatism, corneal subepithelial fibrosis, stromal scars, epithelial basement membrane dystrophy, and Salzman nodular degeneration, corneal ectasia, endothelial abnormalities such as Fuchs dystrophy, elevated IOP, and pseudoexfoliation. As part of the co-management team, we as optometrists aim to diagnose ocular surface disease, 
educate patients about their pre-existing conditions, and treat these diseases before refractive surgery. Studies have shown that dry eye symptoms tend to increase after uncomplicated cataract surgery for at least three months. Optimizing the ocular surface helps to restore corneal health, improve biometry measurements, and minimize visual fluctuations after surgery. My preoperative approach to diagnosing dry eye is to follow three simple steps. First, look at the eyelid for anatomic abnormalities such as lid laxity, ectropion, entropion, and lagophthalmus, as well as ocular rosacea, blepharitis, scurf, debris, and demodex. Second, express the meibomian glands and document the ease of expression and meibom quality. And third, assess the ocular surface by measuring tear volume, corneal and conjunctival fluorescein staining, and tear breakup time. Another important factor concerning dry eye disease is patient education. The prospective health assessment of cataract patients' ocular surface study reported that 60% of patients with preoperative dry eye were asymptomatic. Patients who are asymptomatic may have an easier time understanding their condition if it is compared with high blood pressure or cholesterol. This explanation usually improves compliance with treatment. I also explain to my patients that the cornea is similar to the windshield of a car. Keeping it clear improves visibility, but visibility decreases when the windshield is dry and dirty. Water and soap are the equivalents of dry eye treatment, which is needed to optimize the surface before and after surgery. Explaining how a proposed treatment affects the different layers of the tear film helps patients understand the recommendations and partner in their care. Discuss with patients the fact that cataract surgery and the creation of corneal incisions can aggravate their dry eye disease. Corneal sensitivity and tear production have been shown to decrease after cataract surgery. And those with presbyopic correcting ILLs are more susceptible to visual disturbances from a poor tear film and other forms of ocular surface disease. My pre-surgical core dry eye treatments include a steroid or antibiotic steroid drop to lower inflammation, a hypochlorous acid solution to decrease bacterial load and reduce the risk of postoperative infection, a topical immunomodulator to increase tear production, and pontal occlusion to preserve tear volume. Eyelid disease, including blepharitis, ocular rosacea, and meibomian gland dysfunction, may require additional treatments, such as oral doxycycline, omega-3 fatty acids, blepharo exfoliation, intense pulse light therapy, and thermopulsation treatments. Ocular surface conditions, including Salzman nodules, EBMD, and severe puncta keratitis may require an amniotic membrane or superficial keratectomy. Consistent communication, understanding patient preferences, diagnosing conditions affecting the visual pathway, restoring anatomy, and managing visual expectations during the preoperative examination will set your patient up for success. In addition, a multifaceted dry eye treatment approach is needed to optimize a tear film 
and normalize the ocular surface effectively. This will prevent new or worsening dry eye symptoms and minimize refractive misses, fluctuating vision, and postoperative infection. Finally, providing patients with the necessary tools before surgery will make them feel empowered and confident, creating an optimal environment for achieving excellent results. What did you think of Dr. Gomez's guidance for co-managing patients who are undergoing refractive IOL surgery? Was it helpful? Is there anything you would add? Email us at modernod at bmctoday.com and let us know. Ready for what's next? Great, because we're about to hear Ashley Tucker, a partner and optometrist at Bel Air Family Eye Care in Bel Air, Texas, provide an overview of myopia treatment options available now and those that optometrists are likely to have at their disposal in the near future, right after this break. Support for this podcast comes from Bryn Mawr Communications. BMC produces a number of informative podcast series spanning a variety of topics in optometry. Discover a new show at itube.net slash podcasts. Now that we're back, let's hear Dr. Tucker talk myopia to us. We are living in the most exciting time to be implementing myopia management in our everyday practices. Not only do we have an FDA-approved daily disposable soft contact lens option, but several other treatment options are on the way that we will be able to add to our arsenal to expand our scope of practice even further. In addition, new evidence-based lifestyle recommendations have surfaced, which we can use to supplement our medical myopia control options. Let's explore the newest trends and topics in myopia management. Spending time outdoors has been recognized for years to prevent or delay myopia onset, but the details surrounding what constitutes outdoor time have been ambiguous until recently. The current recommendation is now at least two hours per day, but the more outdoor time, the better. In fact, children who spend less than 13 hours per week outdoors had significantly higher risk of incident myopia. While outdoors, children should truly avoid doing any near work and instead engage in activities that stimulate their distance vision, such as playing sports. The exact level of light intensity necessary to have an effect on incident myopia is yet to be determined, but traditionally, light intensity more than 1,000 lux is considered sufficient to constitute outdoor time. Thus, even being outdoors on a cloudy day is better than being indoors in terms of myopia control. Sleep is a key factor in children's overall health, but it has been recently described as a modifiable behavioral risk factor affecting both myopia onset and progression. According to two recent studies, there is an increased risk of myopia in children who sleep less than five to seven hours per night compared with those who slept more than nine hours per night. In addition, results from a trial conducted in China found that children who had a bedtime of 9.30 p.m. or later were much more likely to be myopic at baseline, develop myopia during the two-year trial, and have more significant myopic progression. These results suggest that children who have an earlier bedtime and sleep longer are less likely to become myopic and to progress at a lower rate if they do develop myopia. MySight One Day is the first FDA-approved soft contact lens 
proven to slow the progression of myopia in children from 8 to 12 years of age at the initiation of treatment. At three years, the trial evaluating this lens concluded that children wearing MySight one day experience on average a 59% reduction in refractive progression and a 52% reduction in axial elongation when compared with a con control group. Most recently, the company released seven-year data showing that despite being switched into a single vision lens for the final year, there was no evidence of a rebound effect after cessation of treatment. In addition, 23% of children who wore MySight one-day lenses for the full six years showed essentially no myopia progression throughout the entire trial. Although MySight one-day is the only FDA-approved contact lens option for myopia control, there are several other highly effective lens designs available for off-label use, such as orthokeratology lenses and center-distance soft multifocal contacts. Although true outdoor time is ideal, there are certainly challenges that may prevent children and their families from spending two or more hours per day outside each day, such as inclement weather, lack of proper supervision, and time constraints. As a result, researchers have proposed an indoor therapy using repeated low-level red light that could potentially mirror the positive effects of outdoor time. In a sham, device-controlled, randomized, double-blind clinical trial in China, Researchers use a device that emits 650 nanometers of red light directly to the retina. The therapy was administered at home under parental supervision twice daily and five days per week. Each session lasted three minutes with the session separated by a minimum of four hours. The preliminary results of this study are very promising with a significant decrease in axial elongation and myopia progression after six months and no structural impacts on the retina. Lodose atropine has been used for decades as an effective off-label form of myopia control. Studies such as low-concentration atropine for myopia progression, or the LAMP trial, and atropine for the treatment of childhood myopia, or the ADAM trial, have been invaluable in determining the appropriate dosing and concentration of this non-selective muscarinic antagonist for clinical use. The Childhood Atropine for Myopia Progression, or CHAMP trial, is moving us one step closer to having an FDA-approved formulation. This is a three-arm, randomized, double-masked, placebo-controlled clinical trial testing several atropine formulations that are shelf-stable at room temperature, preservative-free, and dosed once daily at night. With sites in the United States and Europe, the trial includes patients from 3 to 17 years of age from a variety of different ethnic backgrounds, who have myopia between a half adopter and six adopters, and no more than a doctor and a half of astigmatism. The trial is in phase three and has determined that low-dose formulations of 0.01% and 0.02% atropine are safe with few adverse events. In addition, 0.01% atropine was found to be efficacious in slowing myopia progression as evidenced by spherical equivalent refractive error and axial length measurements when compared with placebo after three years. If approved, this drop will be the first pharmaceutical agent approved for the treatment of childhood myopia. Myopia control spectacles are perhaps the most anticipated addition to our myopia management toolbox. These would provide a complete package of options for our patients and would especially help those who are both contact lens and eye drop averse. Although they are already available in many other countries, they are not yet available here in the United States. There are three leading design options in development, which are Milesmart, Stellist, and Sightglass. 
MyoSmart Spectacle Lenses use Defocus Incorporated Multiple Segments Technology developed in collaboration with the Hong Kong Polytechnic University and is considered to have a dual focus design. The lens consists of a central optical zone for distance correction with approximately 400 plus power plus 350 diopter lenslets equally distributed in a honeycomb pattern throughout the mid peripheral zone. This provides clear distance vision while simultaneously creating myopic defocus on the peripheral retina. Stellus lenses incorporate highly aspherical lenslet target technology with the lens consisting of a single vision optical zone surrounded by 11 rings of aspheric lenslets of varying powers to create a volume of myopic defocus. Sideglass uses diffusion optics technology to reduce contrast. This lens design is based on the theory that high levels of contrast on the retina cause axial elongation, whereas low levels slow elongation. The lens consists of a clear central aperture surrounded by thousands of dots, reducing peripheral retinal contrast by at least 30% when compared to central contrast. The future of myopia management is truly exciting. Practitioners are better equipped now than ever to adopt myopia management as standard of care and to have a positive influence on the lives and vision of our patients. Well, hopefully we're up to speed on the state of myopia management, seeing as it's a very real and manageable condition. Now though, we are at the last article of the episode. Have you ever wondered whether an optometric externship program was right for your practice? If so, you're not alone. And also, today is your lucky day because Osama Saeed is about to serve up the pros and cons to help you make the decision. An externship program can be a valuable addition to any optometric office. It provides students with hands-on experience and can help bridge the gap between academic learning and practical application. However, as with any program, it also comes with its own sets of pros and cons, which I'll review. Offering this type of program provides an opportunity for students to bring fresh ideas and perspectives to your office. They may be familiar with the latest technologies and techniques and can give valuable insight into the latest trends in the field. Externs can also provide feedback on your practice, which can be valuable in identifying areas where you can improve. Moreover, externs can bring a new energy and enthusiasm to your practice, which can be infectious and help motivate other members of your team. These factors can all contribute to a more dynamic and innovative practice, ultimately leading to improved patient care and better outcomes. Additionally, externs are typically unpaid or receive a low stipend, thus reducing the cost of staffing while improving efficiency and revenue by providing additional clinical support. Supporting an extern can also identify a potential future employee who's already familiar with your clinic's operation and culture, which cuts down on the cost of the hiring process in the future. That said, there are still costs associated with incorporating an optometric externship program into your office. These may include providing supervision and training, developing a structured program, and potentially dedicating time and resources away from patient care and other administrative duties. There may also be some liability insurance or board requirements, which we'll discuss more in the con section. Although the cost of an externship program may be less than hiring a full-time employee, it's still important to consider and plan for these costs in advance. Offering an optometric externship program at your practice also affords an opportunity to mentor students and guide them in their learning process. 
as an optometrist, you have a wealth of knowledge and experience that you can share with your externs, helping them to develop their clinical skills and gain a deeper understanding of the field. This can be a rewarding experience as it provides a chance to give back to the next generation of practitioners and positively influence the future of the profession. Additionally, by serving as a mentor, you can help build relationships with future practitioners, which can benefit your practice in the long term. You may even collaborate with externs on research and other projects, which can further contribute to the advancement of the field. Establishing an externship program can also connect you with potential hires. Externs may be looking for employment after completing their education, and serving as an externship site provides an opportunity for them to gain first-hand experience with your practice to see if it's a good fit for them and for you. You'll have the opportunity to observe externs over an extended period, which will help you determine if they would make a good fit for your practice long-term. This can help streamline your hiring process, identify potential hires, and screen for qualities such as technical ability, communication skills, and a cultural fit. Furthermore, by hiring someone who's completed their externship at your practice, you can be confident that they are already familiar with your practice, patients, and procedures. Having your own externship program can create a perception of high academic standards and excellent clinicians among patients. Patients are often impressed by the presence of externs in a practice, as it signals that the practice is committed to ongoing education and training given by knowledgeable and skilled practitioners. This perception can be particularly valuable for practices that are looking to differentiate themselves in a competitive marketplace, helping to attract new patients and retain patients. Additionally, the presence of externs can provide a valuable opportunity to educate patients about the optometric field and the importance of regular eye exams, which can ultimately lead to improved patient care and better outcomes. Some of the cons include setting up an optometric externship program can actually be time and resource insensitive due to requirements such as providing proper supervision and training, developing a structured program that aligns with the extern's academic requirements and the goals of your practice, and providing feedback and guidance to externs throughout their externship program. This may require you to dedicate resources away from patient care and other administrative duties. As the externship program is an additional responsibility on top of running a busy practice, it's important to consider the effects that it may have on your workload and to ensure that you have the time, resources, and support to manage the program effectively before implementing it. For the externship program to be effective, it's essential to have a well-defined structure that matches the school's academic requirements, the extern's aspirations, and the practice goals. This includes developing a curriculum that covers the key areas of your practice that the externs will be exposed to, setting expectations for the externs, and providing them with feedback on their performance throughout the program. Without a structured program, the externship may not provide the intended benefits and there may be a lack of clarity around the program. This can lead to a less than optimal experience for these externs and could even have a negative impact on the practice. Developing a structured program can be time and resource intensive, but it is essential to, to ensuring that the program is effective and achieves the desired outcome. It's important to carefully evaluate the resources required to develop and implement a structured program and to ensure that the program is well aligned with the goals of your practice before implementing an optometric externship program. 
as an optometrist, you are responsible for the actions of your externs. And if one of them makes a mistake that results in injury to a patient, you may be held liable. This can be a significant risk, particularly if, not, if you have not adequately trained and supervised the externs. It's essential to ensure that the externs receive proper training and that they're closely supervised during their clinical activities. It's also important to have appropriate insurance coverage in place to protect your practice in the event of an adverse incident. Liability and insurance issues can increase the costs associated with incorporating an externship program, and it's important to consider these costs when evaluating the feasibility of an externship program for your practice. Although the risk of liability can be mitigated through proper training and insurance, it's important to carefully evaluate the potential risks. Externs are typically present in your office for a limited time, usually a few months at a time. As a result, it can be difficult to establish a long-term relationship with the externs, and it can be challenging to build a cohesive team. Additionally, the constant turnover of externs can disrupt the flow of your practice and may require you to spend additional time and resources orienting new externs. This can be particularly challenging if you have a busy practice as it may be difficult to find the time to provide adequate training and supervision while also managing patient care and administrative duties. To mitigate the effects of the lack of continuity, it's important to establish clear expectations for the externs, provide a well-structured program, and communicate regularly to ensure that externs are on track with their goals and responsibilities. Additionally, it may be helpful to consider establishing ongoing relationships with local optometry schools to provide a pipeline of externs to your practice, which can help to ensure a more consistent supply of well-trained externs. Although the lack of continuity can be a challenge, it can be mitigated through careful planning and well-structured program. Also keep in mind that although externs are well-trained in clinical skills, they may not have the same training experience in optical sales and marketing. This can be challenging if your practice relies heavily on optical revenue, as you may need to spend additional time and resources training externs on the finer points of optical sales and marketing. To mitigate the effects of optical revenue, it's important to establish clear expectations for the externs and communicate regularly with your staff to ensure that they can manage their responsibilities effectively. Providing training and guidance to externs in areas such as optical sales and marketing can also be a valuable learning opportunity for them and help them to develop a more well-rounded understanding of the profession. Although the lack of business training among externs can be a challenge, it can be mitigated through proper planning and support and can provide an opportunity for both the externs and your practice to learn and grow. Incorporating an optometric externship program into your practice can provide several benefits but it also comes with its own set of challenges. Developing a well-structured program that aligns with the goals of the program and the academic requirements of the student is essential to ensuring that the program is effective and beneficial for both the externs and your practice. With proper planning and support, an optometric externship program can be a valuable addition to your practice, providing a rewarding experience for both you and the externs.
Hopefully you found Dr. Saeed's article interesting, but also full of answers to your questions about adding an externship program to your practice. And we hope you enjoyed the rest of the episode as well, of course. As always, get in touch with us if you have any questions, comments, feedback, or ideas. Email us at modernod at bmctoday.com or follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. We want to hear from you. Until next time, be well. Thanks for listening.